Welcome back, Fellowship of the BDL, to episode 12 of The Stinger. In this episode, we'll just be continuing our talks of the happenings of the Arizona Fall League. Since our last episode, there's been three weeks of play in the AFL, with only two weeks remaining. But I will not be able to cover those last two weeks due to some work commitments and work travel. So this will be the last episode on the AFL. I was trying to go to a game with Joe of the Amish Brotherhood sometime during these last few weeks. We were planning on doing a podcast live from the stadium. But with most things with Joe, scheduling never really worked out. So, unfortunately, you guys are just stuck with me again for this podcast. Trying to schedule things with Joe reminds me of a comedy skit by Brian Regan about making Pop-Tarts. I don't know if you guys have ever seen Brian Regan or have heard of that his skit about Pop-Tarts. It's pretty good. You guys should go look it up. I won't do it completely here for you. I'll just give you a little bit of what it's about because it reminds me of Joe. In the skit, he's talking about that there's two instructions on how to cook Pop-Tarts, which kind of baffles him that there's even instructions on how to cook Pop-Tarts. One is for the toaster, and again, he goes into a big thing about putting it into the toaster. And the second instructions on how to cook a Pop-Tart is that you throw it in the microwave for like two seconds. And he goes, if you don't have enough time to put a Pop-Tart in a toaster for a minute and you have to put the pop tart in a microwave for two seconds you might have some time management issues and again for whatever reason kind of reminds me of joe of trying to schedule things with him whatever it is it always seems like he's extremely busy and never has time to do the things that he wants to do so I know he's busy. I know he's got family stuff going on, just like all of us. I always just find it interesting. So not trying to be mean, just to kind of find it funny that it's almost impossible to schedule anything with Joe. It's usually five or six times of rescheduling to finally get some time with him. But anyways, moving on. I think one of the things that he was going to ask me was, why do I like going to these Arizona Fall League games so much? Matter of fact, I like them so much. I take vacation time from work just to attend some of these games. After thinking about it for a little bit, it really comes down to a few things. One, the weather. The weather here in October is just unbelievable. If it's a day game, you can still sit in the shade, be very comfortable, and watch the ball games. And if at night, you can see the full moon coming up over the stadiums, might get a little bit cooler at times, but again, it's just beautiful nights, beautiful days, no wind, no rain, not extremely hot, not extremely cold, just ideal weather to sit and watch a baseball game. The second thing I like about it so much is no one really attends these games, right? Your average attendance is maybe 800 people, somewhere around there. You can sit anywhere you want, so there's not people on top of you, there's no one around you. You can sit in different areas to get different uh, views of the game. If you want to sit behind home plate, you can sit behind home plate. If you want to 
sit by down the first baseline, you go and sit down by the first baseline. If you want to sit down by the third baseline, you can go sit down there. If you want to sit up high, you want to sit low, you just sit wherever you want. No one around you. You're just enjoying it by yourself. Next is when you get closer to the field, you actually can hear what's going on, right? You can hear the guys talking to each other. You can hear the umpires talking about things. You can hear the happenings in the dugouts. Um, you can hear the bullpen guys cheering on when someone gets a hit for a double. They're the ones that are cheering down in the bullpen. And to me, it just it's a neat feeling that you don't normally get from a major league game or even a spring training game for that matter. And I'll, and I'll actually compare these two spring training games. Everybody goes to the spring training games, right? It's almost impossible to get tickets to a spring training game unless you plan ahead, right? You're going to be paying, I don't know, $40, $50 for a ticket probably sitting in the outfield somewhere in the grass. Um, it's hotter. You got, instead of 800 people, you probably got a couple thousand people, probably more than that. And you're seeing the exact same people for the most part. Yeah, there might be an inning or two with the major league guys. But then after that, it's all the minor league guys. And so you're watching the exact same people. So if anybody in our community who's debating whether or not to go to a spring training game or an Arizona Fall League game, I would highly recommend you spend your money and your time going to the Arizona Fall League than to a spring training game. I find it way more enjoyable a lot less expensive. Again, a ticket to an Arizona Fall League game is 10 bucks, So you can't beat that. And again, you're watching the same people. But I think when you hear the sounds and you can hear the ball hitting the bat and the sound of the ball hitting the glove and you can hear the guys talking to each other, again, it's just way more better than any of the other games. So I think that's why I enjoy these games so much more than any other games that I ever go to. Now, with that being said, there are some things that bug me about the Arizona Fall League, and I just can't tell if it's the league that these guys know that it's not a serious league, you know, it's just kind of an instructional thing, or is it actually the way they play? Because there are a lot of mistakes that happen, and it drives me nuts. Some examples pop up on the third base dugout, you know, maybe in the coach's box and the third baseman overruns the ball and doesn't catch it. Um, a lot of pass balls uh, for the catcher. So I don't know if the wild pitches, um, but the catchers seem to have a lot of pass balls going back to the backstop. Way more than what you'd ever see in a major league game. A lot of ground balls getting booted from the shortstop or the third baseman. In the outfield, you'll have a guy who... Occasionally, will drop a fly ball, hit the palm of his glove, and it'll pop out. A lot of base running mistakes, you know, not knowing how many outs there are or or not taking off when there's two outs and the full count. You know, there's just little things like that that you'll see that a lot more mistakes that you'll see in a regular game. And again, I just don't know if it's that's how a lot of major league, minor league guys are or if it's just that they're not playing 100% to their full ability. Another example, uh, pitcher Abner Uribe, this guy throws 100 miles an hour, came in, first bat batter of the game, 
The guy got a base hit off of him. It was just a single out to the outfield. Gets the ball back, and then he throws the ball into the dugout. Never called timeout. Uh, just just threw the ball into the dugout, right? So the umpires noticed that, that, hey, no one called timeout, which means it's a live ball. And so they awarded the guy all the way to third base. So a lot of just kind of bonehead mental mistakes like that that you'll see that does kind of drive you nuts a little bit. That's not as clean as watching a major league game. But maybe that's why they're minor leaguers. But one of the reasons why I do like going to these, or another reason why I like going to these, is to see who really likes to play baseball and who doesn't, right? When you see a guy out there who's hustling his ass off and you know they're stealing bases or they're diving for the ball or they hit a ground ball to shortstop and they're still running as hard as they can to first base, to me, that means something. When I, when I see a guy who's loafing, whose head's not into it, you know, that I take that and I, that means something to me also, right? To me, an example here is Joey Weimer. Again, not really probably a top prospect. He might be moving up the boards a little bit. I don't know if he's in the top 100 anywhere. He's an outfielder for the Milwaukee Brewers. This guy was hustling all over the place. I mean, he, he was playing as if his life depended on it. And he was... Diving in the outfield for balls, he actually caught a couple. Um, you know, making strong throws into third base where he nailed a runner at third base. Taking good bats and, and hustling, trying to try, trying to to stretch singles into doubles, right? All that type of stuff. I look at that and I go, okay, this guy is a player and he wants to play. And to me, that might mean something. Trying to move up into the leagues. Now his batting uh, approach is a little bit different. He's way jerky you know a lot of movement um too much for me to where it looks a little spastic but every time he was at bat that i saw him he was at least hitting the hard ball to the outfield and again he was at least trying to make doubles out of him sometimes it was a single but but at least looked like he wanted to be there and then on the other hand you have somebody who is a top prospect and marco luciano who, when I saw him, I was like, really? This guy's a top 10 prospect, and I'm watching him, and he's striking out. I mean, he's taking horrible at-bats. He was striking out at on horrible pitches. I think he booted at least two balls at shortstop that I saw. and just didn't look like he cared to be there, right? And, and again, some of these guys might not want to be there, and they're told to be there. Or he knows that, you know, basically practice, and so don't worry about, you know, your stats or anything like that. I'd really like to know what their mindsets are in going into these um, because some guys seem to take it seriously and some guys don't. In our previous podcast, we talked about some of the rule changes that they're going to have. And so I just want to touch on those a little bit here. There are the bigger bases. And you really wouldn't notice that if you didn't read up that, hey, they're making the bigger bases. Um, I didn't really see anything bad about it or good about it um so no big deal there uh, they weren't allowed to overshift in 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 this league uh, so they had to have you know the first baseman the second baseman had to stay on that on their side and the shortstop and the third baseman had to stay on their side and they weren't allowed to cross over onto the other you know past second base kind of have mixed feelings about the shift part of me says i don't like rules that say you can't do it 
The other part drives me nuts is that when they do shift over, that a major league baseball player can't figure out how to hit to the ball to the other side of the field so that they wouldn't shift on them. But I didn't really see anything major with these guys that says, okay, because he didn't shift, they got more hits, or because they were going to shift, they would have prevented hits. So I don't really think it made that much of a difference here. If they implemented it in the major leagues, um, it might make more of a difference. There might be more hits coming. Uh, might raise batting averages a little bit. But, again, not necessarily a fan of not allowing them to do it. It's more aggravating knowing that the major league baseball players can't work around it. I had read something about that there's going to be a communications between pitcher and catcher, some type of comp between the two. Uh, for whatever reason, I don't think that this got implemented because I did not see any of that type of stuff. I, the catchers still went out there plenty of times to talk to the pitchers. The coaches went out there plenty of time to talk to the pitchers. Um, they were still doing the you only got that, that check that you can only go out there five times. So I don't think that got implemented. Uh, the automatic ump for strikes and balls. This was implemented a couple years ago at the AFL, and, and I think I had done a podcast back then and said that I didn't like it. Um, there was a big delay at that point in time. I don't think they were capturing curveballs correctly because there were some bad calls. This year, it looked uh, a lot more fluid. You, you couldn't even tell that the umpire was getting the signal of whether it was a ball and strike. There didn't seem to be anything that was a totally missed call like you know two years ago with the curveballs in the dirt or something like that so uh, they look like there were some improvements on that a lot of improvement on that now the funny thing here is is the listening to the the fans in the in the stadium every once in a while will get on the umpire for what they think was a bad call and i just kind of think you know the umpire doesn't even have any say over it and it's just kind of funny listening to the the fans still get on them not knowing that uh, he's not even the one making the call. Do I see that this is going to be something that's going to be implemented in the major leagues? Yeah, it's probably going to be implemented in the major leagues here within the next couple of years, I bet. The pitch clock is another interesting thing. This probably has more effect on the game than any of the other rules. In this league, they had a 17-second uh, pitch clock once the pitcher kind of gets the ball. Um, there are a lot of violations this year in it for both the pitcher and the hitter because if the batter doesn't get into the batter's box in that amount of time also, then they'll get the strike called. If the pitcher doesn't throw the ball in that amount of time, there'll be a ball called. And, it's, and he has to just start his his, uh, his his pitch. So once he, he starts the pitch, that's when the clock stops. Um, but again, several violations. It seems to happen a lot more. The violation comes into effect after like a play. So, for instance, a guy hits a triple, right, and then they're they're trying to set up for the next play. That's typically where the violation comes in or at the beginning of the inning, right? There's a little bit of, you know, probably not knowing when the clock had started and people are still trying to just get back into positions and stuff like that. Um, so I, I kind of noticed it more after, you know, a big play kind of happened. I, you know, a play at home plate, uh, you know, a triple, something big happened besides just a, you know, a normal single type of thing or a walk. I had seen it where 
ball four was called. I've seen it where strike three was called. You know, on the batter, he didn't get in the batter's box fast enough, and they called strike three on him. Uh, he just has to walk back to the dugout. There was one player um, who got uh, a strike call to him on him. Again, it was there was a play I think at home plate. He wasn't. He didn't get back into the batter's box uh, when it was his turn to a bat. It was his you know, first time coming up, and they called a strike on him, and he kind of mumbled something to the umpire. The umpire uh, ejected him right away. Again, maybe it was a quick injection. I'm not quite sure what the guy said, but obviously you're not really allowed to argue uh, the violation at all. Um, sometimes the pitchers would question also when they got the ball called on them, you know, like, what did I do or why would that happen? Um, so not real sure. It does seem when they do get called on it from the batter and from the pitcher that they do get rattled a little bit. So um, it takes them a few more pitches or, you know, know, before they kind of get it out of their head that they got this violation against them. But interesting. The thing I do like about it, which means it it keeps the game moving, right? And we've seen this even in the major leagues now where the game seems to be moving a little bit faster just because there's not a lot of dead time between pitches, right? They're, They're on top of it, you know, Back in the day, I remember watching like a Normor Garcia Parra come up to the plate, and it would take him, you know, two minutes between every pitch to adjust his gloves and to take his practice swings, and it was every pitch. And that was driving me nuts. Or a relief pitcher coming in, and he throws his one pitch, and then he has to go to the back of the mound, do his routine, come up and, you know, do it, and it would just take a long time. So it's getting away from that, which I like. You know, it's just basically give me the ball, let's pitch it, hit it, right? We're not we're not taking five minutes in between each pitch. So from that standpoint, I like it. I just wish they didn't have to have a, a pitch clock in order to do it. I just wish people would do it on their own. But anyways, probably something that might get implemented also in the major leagues. Although I, I see that they're kind of doing it better on their own without having the pitch clock. So that's pretty much it from the rules. Um from some of the guys that I saw, let's just do a few takes on some of the players that I saw. I was really hoping to see um, C.J. Abrams, shortstop of the San Diego Padres. He was supposed to be out here, um, but I think he was nursing an injury before the season started, so I don't think he's made his way out. At least I have not seen him in the few games that I uh, of the team that he was on. Another one was Riley Green, of the outfielder of the Detroit Tigers. I was hoping to see him, but I think he was also battling a uh, concussion uh, from the from the regular season that he was in. So I don't think he made his way out. Uh, so those are two guys I was really hoping to see that that I, I, I did not see. Spencer Torkelson was another guy I was really excited to see. Um, he was only uh, in the games I saw, and this is only like the first week that he was here. Um, he was only DHing. He never took the field. He only DHed. He looked really good um, from a hitting standpoint, but he did. Uh, he tweaked his ankle um, on a pickoff play at third base, where he's, he went back standing up and stepped on top of the base and slipped off. And so I think he tweaked his ankle, and he hasn't made an appearance uh, since then. I think he's probably done. Uh, Nolan Gorman. Um, I was also really excited to seeing. Second baseman for the St. Louis Cardinals. Actually, he was probably really a third baseman, 
But here he plays second base, and which will also tell me that he's probably going to be playing second base for the St. Louis Cardinals, not third base, um, for obvious reasons there. Um, he was having a really good season uh, here. Um, I do think he tweaked his hamstring uh, a week or so ago, so he hasn't played since, and I, he'll probably won't be coming back um, to the league anymore also. But was impressed with, with what I saw there. Uh, I already mentioned Joey Weimer. He was probably one of the, the the brighter spots of the league. Again, just least entertaining to watch. First baseman uh, Juan Yepes of the St. Louis Cardinals. Interesting guy. I was impressed with the way he played. He played well. Bryson Stott, shortstop of the Philadelphia Phillies. He played very well. Uh, Nick Gonzalez, I was impressed with with, with his playing. Both the Colorado guys of Ryan Villad and Michael Togola, I think they played well. Uh, interesting thing here is Ryan Villad um, played the outfield, mostly left field. Uh, Tristan Casas, interesting player to watch. Again, tall guy. Again, another interesting thing that I like to come out here and watch these games is getting some eyes on some of these guys. You know, some of them are really skinny you know, or small. Some of them are, are built you know, they look like baseball players. Uh, Tristan Cases doesn't necessarily look like a baseball player. Kind of an awkward-looking guy, just the way he stands, um, kind of hunched over a little bit, a little tall, a little, little chubby. But uh, but yeah, I think he had a, a pretty good outing. Somebody that looks like a baseball player is Yokli Cespedes. I mean, this guy is you know, he's pretty solid. Soli Mateus, he looked really good. Again, for the most part, the, of the guys that I wanted to see, not really too many of them really disappointed me. Like, oh, my God, this guy who I thought was going to be really good. No, really wasn't. Again, probably the only one that stands out is the Marco Luciano. I just w- was not impressed with him at all. But I'm going to give him the benefit of doubt with how high of a prospect he is. There must have been something else going on. None of the pitchers uh, really impressed me. There's only one guy who I thought stood out. His name was Owen White. He's probably not a very high prospect in the Texas organization, um, but he's probably had the best uh, showing so far of the starting pitchers. To see McKenzie Gore two times, again, there's, I'm just not impressed with him. He reminds me of Rich Hill a little bit, where if things are going good, he seems to be okay, but the minute things start going bad, he seems to fall apart and... He could go a couple batters and things were fine and he looked pretty confident up there. But the minute somebody got a hit off of him, you could tell something with him would would go off a little bit. And uh, he gave a couple home runs uh, in the games that I saw. And, you know, um, and walked a few. Just kind of seemed to be struggling with emotions to me. But but I, I could be wrong. But definitely kind of got a rich heel feel from him. Uh, Slade Ciccone of the Arizona Diamondbacks, not really impressed with him. Uh, Again, the two games I saw, he just struggled with command, walked a lot of guys, Uh, not overly impressed. I did get out and finally saw a game of Hans Cross. Um, That's a funky-looking dude. Um, He's a left-hander, has a very weird delivery. It's, It's like a snapping snapping motion when he throws uh, it, you know just looks painful looks 
Looks like his neck and back would hurt after he threw uh, a c- couple times. Had these sparkling gold, red and gold shoes on, which I was a little surprised that they would allow him to have those shoes on because to me they're a little bit distracting. But they kind of remind me of like Ronald McDonald's shoes. But not again, not overly impressed. I think he also kind of has the emotional aspect of when things start going bad, um, he, he can fall off uh, uh, fairly quickly. But other than that, not really anybody from a pitching standpoint stood out for me. And again, for the most part, I think I mentioned this before, this league is not known to have great pitchers coming into it. Um, it's a lot of relief pitchers. Um, you know, they, they don't really want a lot of these guys to go long into the games. They usually just come in and f- throw, you know, maybe three or four innings, at the, you know, at the most, maybe five. And then it's really a bullpen game after that. It really, I'm sure they're pretty tight on their, their pitch counts. So with that being said, let's just look at some stats real quick. I just, um, I, I don't want to go into every game. I was going to go over some stat leaders for interesting things. We'll start with the pitching guys. From innings pitched, Owen White had 19 point. You know, this is as of Saturday, uh, November 6th. Uh, looks like Owen White's leading with the 19.1 innings. Uh, Connor Siebold, 17.1. Uh, Miguel Dominguez, 16.2 innings. Hans Cross, 16 innings. Victor Vodnik, 16 innings. Jeff Criswell, 15.2 innings. Slay Shikoni, 15 innings. Cole Henry, 15 innings. From a, let's see who gave up the most home runs. Uh, Connor Seabaz giving up four home runs. Victor Vodnik's giving up four home runs. Williams Woods, four home runs. Uh, a bunch of three guys. Uh, strikeouts, let's see who the strikeouts leaders was. Hans Cross. As uh, the strikeout leader, uh, he has 24 strikeouts in 16 innings. So that's pretty good. Uh, more more strikeouts in the innings pitched. Cole Henry has 23 and in 15 innings. Jeff Krinswall, 20 strikeouts and in 15.2 innings. Michael Dominguez, 19 strikeouts and in 16.2 innings. Owen White, 19 strikeouts and in 19.1 innings. So so not bad. Right, here's an interesting one. Uh, Garrett Hill, 18 strikeouts in 10 innings. So um, that's pretty interesting. From an ERA standpoint, let's see. That's uh, a little bit tougher to. I'm not going to do ERA and whip just because of the amount of innings pitched. Let me go back to the innings pitch. Let's just go back. So, like for instance, Owen White, his ERA is 1.4, his whip was. 0.98, so really good there. Uh, Hans Cross, uh, 5.06 ERA, 1.31 whip. Uh, Slade Ciccone, 2.4 ERA, 1.47 whip. Cole Henry, 4.2 ERA, 1.13 whip. Let's find a couple of other guys here. Uh, Josh Rushledge, uh, 6.43 ERA. 1.86 whip. Zach Thomas, 2.03 ERA, 1.58 whip. Let's, I just want to find a couple other guys. Uh, Landon Knack, 4.26 ERA, 1.18 whip. Trying to find, 
McKinsey Gore here. Let's see if I can find McKinsey Gore. Yep, here we go. McKinsey Gore, 6.35 ERA, 1.5 or 1.85 whip. And he's pitched like 11 innings. He's given up 15 hits, had nine runs, eight of them were earned, two home runs, hit one person, walked six people, struck out eight. So, all right, let's move on to the hitters. Let's do some of the top uh, top guys here. So let's look at batting average first. So there's a Nelson Vasquez who's hitting 392. He's an outfielder. Spencer Horowitz, first baseman. He's hitting 386. Gabriel Montero, catcher, 373. Elijah Durham, 362. Jackson Clough, 358. Nick Gonzalez, 356. Nathan Eaton, 345. JJ Belay, 333. Bryson Stott, 333. Tristan Cases, 322. Lars Nutbar, 322. Those are kind of your top batting averages. Let's look who has the most home runs. Nelson Vasquez has seven home runs. Uh, Sully Mateus has six home runs. Jeter Downs has five home runs. I did see Jeter Downs in one game. He looked okay in the one game. I saw him again. Nothing stood out. I do believe, like the that whole after that game that I saw him, the whole following week, I think he had a home run in every game that he played that week. Um, but it doesn't look like he's done much since that one week. And actually, I'll just read off his stat line here real quick. So he's has forty three at bats, nine runs, nine hits, five home runs. And I think I think again, I think there was a week where he was really good. Fourteen RBIs, fourteen base on balls, thirteen strikeouts. Uh, four stolen bases, got caught twice, and he's hitting 209. Going back to the home run list, we got Ivan Johnson, five home runs. Cameron Meisner, five home runs. Lars Nutbar, five home runs. Juan Yopez, five home runs. And then after that, we got a bunch of fours and threes. From a run standpoint, who has the most runs? Again, that Nelson Vasquez has 20. Yihan B has 18, Lars Nutbar 18, Bryson Stott 17, Andy Weber 17, Nick Gonzalez 15, Logan O'Hoppy 15, Jackson Clough 14, Cameron Meisner 14, Gabriel Montero 14, and Richie Polescos 14, just in case it's 13. That's probably enough there. Let's go look at RBI leaders. Uh, Bryson Stott has 21, Sully Mateus 19, Yohan Yepes 19, J.J. Belay 18, Nelson Vasquez 17, Andy Weber 16, Jeter Downs 14, Logan on Hop 13. That's probably good there. Let's see who our stolen bases leader was. Michael Sanaya. I think he's a Reds center fielder. He has 10 stolen bases. Only caught once. Elijah Durham, nine stolen bases. No caught stealings. Johan Bay, seven stolen bases. Caught once. Justin Clough, six stolen bases. Not, uh, no, no caught stealings. And then Bison Stott, five 
Stolen bases caught twice. Well, that's probably enough there. Now let's see who's had the most strikeouts. Brett Beatty uh, has 27 strikeouts. Logan Davison, 25 strikeouts. Sully Mateus, 24 strikeouts. Nelson Vasquez, 23 strikeouts. Ivan Johnson, 22. Marco Luciano, 21. Uh, again, I'm just going to touch on Marco Luciano's line here. So he's played in 54. He's had 54 at-bats, played in 15 games. He's had only six runs. He's only had 11 hits. Uh, no doubles, no triples. Two home runs, eight RBIs. He's walked 10 times, struck out 21 times. Uh, no stolen bases attempts. He's hitting 204. Another guy that uh, I just uh, saw here real quick is Justin uh, Fiscue, second baseman of Texas. I was hoping to see him. I just never saw him in a game. Looks like he's had 50 at-bats. He's had 12 runs, 11 hits, 3 doubles, 3 home runs, 9 RBIs, 11 base on balls, struck out 19 times, 2 stolen bases, caught once, and he's only hitting 220. Uh, Cespedes, I'm just now I'm just kind of hitting on a couple guys here. Cespedes has had 55 at bats, seven runs, 11 hits. He's had three doubles. He's only walked twice, no home runs, 17 strikeouts, two stolen bases, only hitting 200. Uh, Pedro Leon, I did see him uh, a few times. Again, nothing that really stood out um, from him. He's hitting 245. He's had 53 at bats. Has seven base on balls. Struck out 16 times. One home run. Again, nothing, nothing out of the ordinary there. Anyways, I'm, I'm sure you guys are tired of me uh, running off my stats and, and numbers, so I think I'll I'll end it there. Anyways, it was, to me, another great season. Um, Going to ask for, again, better weather. Always always enjoy going to these games. So, uh, unfortunately, I won't be able to go to the last two weeks of it. So, I'll have to wait again until next year and uh, see what happens then. Anyways, thanks for listening, everybody. See ya.